Hear the word of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, but none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is uh, time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, Peter comes full throttle, back to this theme of suffering in the life of a Christian, suffering because one is a Christian, uh, really. Uh, and I take that from verse, thir- uh, from verse 12, really, when he speaks of this fiery trial that comes upon us. Verse 13, when he says that we share in Christ's sufferings. Uh, in verse 14, when he speaks of being insulted for the name of Christ. In verse 16, as he speaks of suffering As a Christian, verse 19 sums it up when he says, let those who suffer according to God's will. So there's a sense of suffering for good, suffering for righteousness sake. Not suffering, he says here, as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. That is somebody who who is suffering in the context of their own sin or because of it. but, But someone who's suffering, being insulted, if you will, for the sake of Christ, sharing in Christ's suffering. This is consistent with the tenor of this holy epistle. Uh, Peter has been speaking to a group of people, some of whom no doubt are suffering presently, uh, some who who will suffer, they have the possibility of suffering. Perhaps as they receive this letter, they say, we're not suffering as you describe, but Peter is preparing them for it. Uh, Certainly there's this sense, as we read this, that Christians in the course of their lives will will experience a sense of this suffering. Uh, For instance, uh, those suffering now, even in uh, chapter 3 and verse 9, he says to them very directly, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. In other words, it appears that right at this moment there are some who are being insulted uh, for the sake of Christ. In in chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, with respect to this, that is, the lives of unbelievers, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So you get this sense that even presently, some who are reading this letter say, yes, I see that, I understand that, that's, that's really happening uh, to me at this uh, present time. Uh, for others, it, it may be later down the road, and he uses a, a lot of if-when statements. Uh, not so much if, in the sense that it may not, but if, because it's going to happen, if-when. And so he says, if you're suffering for, as a Christian, if you're insulted for the sake of Christ, if this occurs in your life. But then we also realize that there's some universal aspect of this amongst Christians as well. Christians in every generation at every time will experience, from time to time in various areas, this kind of suffering. So much so that in verse 9 of chapter 5, he says, resist him, the him there is Satan, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So this is happening in various spots everywhere. uh, So that what you're suffering uh, is happening to them too. Shouldn't surprise us. 
mean, as we were singing, we heard some passages uh, from the lips of Jesus. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12 in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, Blessed are you when you are reviled for my name. You're, you're, you're blessed. And John chapter 15, beginning with verse 18, Jesus speaks to the fact that because they hated him, they will hate you, he says. So because we're attached, we're joined to Jesus, we're identified with him, he's saying you can expect that people will turn against you, people will hate you just for that uh, very fact. Uh, the apostles warned of it as well as, as, uh, as, as, as Paul is working his way through the various churches. We find, for instance, in the book of Acts in chapter 14, he says that before we enter the kingdom of heaven, before we enter the kingdom of God, we will experience all kinds of tribulations, all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of tribulations. In fact, as he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy in chapter 3, he simply says, all those who wish, wish, wish to live a righteous life will be persecuted. So you get this sense of the potential, if not the reality, at any one moment in time, that there are those who would turn against us simply because we're believers uh, in Christ. That was certainly the experience in the early church. If you read through the book of Acts, you find that every time the gospel entered into a new area or a new city, a new town, there was tremendous opposition against it. Even at the point of persecuting, of beating those who brought that message. Uh, we see it as we read through Paul's letters and in his own life as he speaks to not only the insults, but the physical persecutions which he suffered. We read church history and we find it throughout the history of the church. Even in our own day, we know of Christians who are suffering and dying simply because they're believers in Christ. We know all this is true because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where people do not want to embrace the truth of Christ. Some of you, all of us at one time, were in that. And we did not want to embrace the truth of Christ. It may well have been offensive to us because it cuts right against our own pride and, 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 and self-determination and being able to determine our own destiny and be free to decide for ourselves what is truth. And then all of a sudden we have this one Jesus who arrives on the scene and he says, no, 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 I will tell you what is truth. I'm truth. There is no other truth besides me. And we say, no, 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 I've got other categories of truth here. And he cuts right against that. And he says, no, you're actually wrong, he says. And he is actually right. Because he's the very son of God. And that cuts right into all of that. And people get quite upset with those who hold, hold the views that we do. Because you see, being attached to Jesus means we're, we're attached to one who believes himself to be, that is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. You remember Jesus said that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by, through me. And by that he meant there isn't any other way for you to enter into the presence of God unless you come through me. There's no other way to get to God other than coming through me. There's no other truth. That is, there's no one else. There's nothing that anyone else has done that's reliable, that you can rely upon, that's true truth that you can rely upon and grab a hold of and through it enter into the presence of God. He says, I'm the only one through whom you can go because you need my life and you need my death and you need my resurrection in order to enter into the presence of God because I'm the one who's lived in such a way that would please the Father and I've come to do it as your representative. 
I've come to do it on your behalf. So trust me, and my righteousness will be yours. He says, I've come also to take upon myself the sin that you deserve because of your sin, the punishment that you deserve because of your sin, and I've come to take it upon myself. And there's no other way to enter into the presence of God unless your sins be forgiven, unless you're pure. And thus, trust me. I've done that for you. And then he rose from the dead as verification that he really did that for us. For he didn't die for his own sins, but rather for ours. So once he had paid for our sins, he was free to go. And so his resurrection verified that the Father accepted the payments on our behalf. And so he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm life. There's no other life other than that comes by me. If you're living without me, Jesus says, it isn't life that you're living. It may appear as if it's life that you're living, but a day will come when you'll see that it isn't life, it's death. And you see, that can be offensive to somebody who thinks they know it already and think they have the right to self-determination, to think they have the right to, to, to determine their own destiny. And then they find this stumbling block in the way. Jesus, who says, no, 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 I'm the determiner of destinies. And so you see, they may well come against this. And there's an adversary against this as well. Uh, Peter writes about him. Satan himself, he refers to him as one who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those, seeking someone to devour we read in Revelation in chapter 12 that, that, that the scripture says that he's filled, this Satan, this adversary, is filled with fury and comes and wages war against the followers of Jesus. In fact, out from everywhere arises these beasts who he elicits to help him. And in one sense, it may be that of, of just this whole secular system, the whole secular world, and even eliciting this whole avenue of false religion to come and aid him to wage war against followers of Jesus. And so all this comes, you see, and it comes against us. And Peter's saying, now you shouldn't be surprised by this. It shouldn't surprise you when this is happening because, you see, all of this is most uh, certainly true. So don't be surprised when this comes against you. Now, uh, Peter here describes the kind of uh, suffering that he has in mind. Verse 14, he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but, 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 but physical suffering in America right now today against Christians would surprise me. I mean, if I heard that a Christian got shot simply because he named the name of Christ, especially it was from, by some government authority, that, that really, frankly, would surprise me. Now, historically, it shouldn't surprise me because that kind of thing happened all throughout history. But something that doesn't surprise me at all, even in our own context in these days, is being insulted for the name of Christ. If you have family that's not Christian, you can feel the digs from time to time if you're a believer in Christ. I've prayed with a number of people just in the last week or so who are going home for Thanksgiving and who understand when they get there life will not necessarily be pleasant for them because they're believers and family is not believers and they know the hits they're going to take so they wanted to be prayed for before they went so be strengthened and helped uh, and get some encouragements along the way. Most certainly we differ in many aspects from the world just 
by our behavior, by our lifestyle, by our language, for instance. And this isn't just that we don't curse or blaspheme. It's also that we're not to gossip, to slander others. And do you know how much that leaves us out of conversations? Uh, We know there are certain things that may, in some sense, be humorous, but, but yet when we dig deep, we know they're not really humorous. In fact, I took a field trip about a month ago for about 20 minutes on the Comedy Channel. I do that every once in a while just to see what in the world makes people laugh. And I was amazed, and I don't know if it was just providence, though I suspect I must be careful not to be a heretic here. I suppose it was providence that I happened to click on at that moment in time. But there was all kinds, about half the humor was against Christians, some directed against Christ himself. And it was painful to listen to because people were laughing at things that I take very sacred, very special. And yet that's the world in which we live. That's the kind of insults that Christians receive. Um, Our integrity, it's to be different. We're to live lives of integrity. Uh, There was a special on 2020, I've been told just the other night, about integrity uh, in the classroom and in in university campuses and the amount of plagiarism that takes place. And and that not only can you just pick up an already written paper from the internet, but people are actually selling themselves. You can actually purchase an original paper from someone who you, who you can contract with and they will, they will write it for you. And Christians are supposed to look at that and say, no, 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 that's not the way that we live. Uh, certainly in the context of, of how we dress. And here, if you'll excuse me, I'm thinking mostly context of women's fashions in these days. It's always been true. It becomes increasingly true in how we must dress, the scripture says, modestly not to attract attention to the external, not to reveal that which isn't supposed to be revealed in public. And yet, it's very difficult, I know, for Christian women to buy clothes in certain situations, in certain places, because they just don't exist. It will cover what you want to have covered. And yet, we must still do that. Obviously, in the area of sexuality, we could go on forever in terms of the differences between Christians and unbelievers and how they view us all the way from being prudes to being naive, Uh, to being intolerant, to even being immoral because of the views that we hold here. There was a a little incident the other night, some of you may have seen, I didn't, just heard about, read about, on Monday Night Football, where the opening scene was a scene wherein uh, the impression was given that an unclothed woman uh, was trying to seduce one of the football players who was supposedly going to play in that game to test him, to tempt him, and he even began to wonder, oh, maybe I won't play in this game. There was all kinds of controversy brewing if you listen to the sports radio stations or if you read in various uh, newspaper accounts and so forth and so on about this. Some saying that that was inappropriate to do because 10-year-old boys might be tuning in at that time with their dads to watch the game or that uh, there were some racial stereotypes that were being uh, reinforced during in that little incident. Uh, and all that's no doubt true. But the world would simply be amazed at us when we simply said the reason that it was wrong is that it was immoral. That sexual intimacy outside of marriage is wrong. That's our view. And I think if that would have been called into the talk shows, they would have said, nah, that's really, I mean, come on. Nobody believes that. It's just not right for 10-year-old boys. They said, no, no, it's not right for 50-year-old men. You see. 
So the differences are great. And we find from time to time that as these differences grow, and they will, that we will be insulted. And we mustn't be naive to think it doesn't hurt. You know, the old line, sticks and stones can break your bones, but names can never hurt you. We know that's a lie. Well, that's just a lie. Sticks and stones can break your bones, but names can really hurt you. Uh, being insulted can really hurt. And so, so Peter's honest enough to say, this is suffering. This is a fiery trial. You can feel the burn in the context of all of this. But don't be naive. Don't think this is strange if this happens. This is how it is. I must say the other week, last week, when I was reading the ordination questions for Chad, I stumbled over one that I always stumble over. Uh, And it's one that has this expression in it. And that is in a sense that you'll follow Christ no matter what opposition or persecution may arise. And I'm sure if you were in my shoes at that moment, being the one asking another to make that vow, you would take that very seriously. And I had to begin to wonder, what is there in me that will give this vow to this young man that I love? Why would I be asking him to make a vow that could lead to his persecution and even death? And then I have to ask the question, I'm a father, I have children. I've spent my whole life introducing them to Jesus. But I have to think, what is there that, that makes me desire for my children to believe in Jesus when I know that believing in him might result in their being ostracized by the world, being insulted by their friends at school, being cast aside by those very ones in which, with whom they may want a relationship, even to the point of one day being the very thing that leads to their torture and death. And I don't think I'm being overly dramatic here. And the question is, what is there about that? And the answer, of course, is because it's true. There'd be nothing better in the context of our lives than to believe even if it leads to persecution, even if it leads to insult, even even if it leads to what this passage calls fiery trials. In fact, it isn't so much that we need to ask the question, how is it that we can continue to persevere in the midst of this? The question that arises from this passage is, how is it that we can continue to rejoice in the midst of it? That's the word. I mean, Peter says to us this, verse 13, but rejoice. And then in verse 14, he said, or in, which verse? The end of verse 13, he also then puts, rejoice and be glad, which some versions say, be, uh, rejoice with exceedingly great joy. So the question is, knowing what we know, knowing that it will be no surprise for us to be insulted or ostracized even by the world, how is it that we can live and rejoice? Here's Peter's answer. First of all, this. To realize that this is the will of God. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. It's it's the will of God. He has a plan and a purpose. It isn't your adversary that you have to be worried about. 
It isn't those who are insulting you that, that you think are acting independently. But no, God is bringing this and he's calling it a test. Notice verse 12, he said, Beloved, don't be surprised when at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. This is the test and it may be through various adversaries and through various ones who come against us, but really it's a test designed for us by God. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 6, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This is God who's bringing this test. So don't be afraid. It's not a test that's come to destroy. It's a test that's come to bless. It's a test that's come to help. And so this is a test, and it's a meaningful one, not a meaningless one. It's a purposeful test. It has a, a great purpose because, you see, it is from God himself. So he says, don't be surprised. Don't be worried. This is from God. He cares for you. He's bringing this test. And when God brings these tests, again, it is to grow us up. It is to ultimately bless us. If you read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, you don't need to turn to this, but if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's a story, it's, it's an account of Moses as he's retelling the event from when the Israelites left Egypt and got to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And there was a much more direct route that God could have took the Israelites from Egypt to Canaan. But the route he took was one that took them right up against the Red Sea that they couldn't cross on their own, took them to places where there was no food, took them to places where there was no water, took them to places where there were enemies all around. And the question is, why? Well, the answer given in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is so that God could test to see what was in their hearts to see whether or not they would obey him. It was a test. And the desire of God was that, yes, they would obey. Yes, what he would see in their hearts was love for him and that they would walk with him. And so when... God brings these tests to us that is a world that's opposed to us, that insults us. We need to play smart. We need to be wise. We need to understand what's happening. And so when these things start to happen, we need to get this little internal grin on our face and go, I know what's going on here. It doesn't surprise me. God is bringing this. And he has a purpose in it. And so I can rejoice and Peter moves on. He says, secondly, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You see, there's a sense in which when we're insulted for the name of Christ, we're, we're identifying with him and we're joined with him and we're sharing in his sufferings at that moment. It isn't that Christ is being re-crucified. It isn't that our sufferings are atoning for anybody else's sins. It's just simply as Jesus said, if you identify with me, you'll suffer. I suffered, you'll suffer. And he says, I want to make sure that you're suffering for righteousness' sake because that's how Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered for righteousness' sake. He suffered for truth. And we're to suffer not as a murderer, not as a thief, not as an evildoer, not as a meddler. It's just an interesting range, isn't it? See? We're not to suffer because we've violated someone else, done evil against someone else. We're to suffer because we've been walking with Christ. I read a month or so ago the story of Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. Because all they had against Daniel was that he obeyed his God. And that's all anyone should have against us. If they have anything against us, it's that we obey God. And it isn't that we've offended them because we've sinned against them, but we've obeyed God. And that's what ultimately then cuts 
and offends and causes them to insult us. And so Peter says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that is, that you're along with him. And you know what happens when we experience that, when we share his sufferings? Then these fiery trials, as the scriptures say, come to test us. Because you see, these tests are to grow us up. The scripture uses three metaphors generally to describe our maturing. One is the metaphor of the father and child, as the father disciplines his child so that the child grows up. He disciplines his child for his child's own good. The second is this metaphor of a gardener pruning a vine so that the vine will be more fruitful. And the third is that of this refiner's fire. That is, this metal worker's fire. And so that the metal can be put into the fire and purified. That, you see, is this testing. And so during the time of this testing that comes, you see, that's to be the end result. That we're to be purified. For instance, in, in, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, in verse 8, the Apostle Paul refers to his own testing and he puts it like this. He says, For we do not want to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So these things were coming against Paul so much that he thought he was going to die. That's the level, the amount of suffering he was experiencing. Then verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He said, listen, the reason this test came was to purify us. The reason this test came was to strengthen us. The reason this test came was to knock everything off us that wasn't trust in Christ. That's why they come. So when the trials come, you see, we get this sense of, ah, I'm sharing in the sufferings of Christ. I'm being tested for Christ's sake. I'm being tested so that I would trust in him. I'm growing. I'm strengthening. You see, so much are we to identify with Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, again, chapter 2, he says that we are to be the aroma of Christ to the world. We're to smell like Jesus. There's a sense in which, he says, we're to smell like life to those who are being saved, we're to smell like death to those who are perishing. We smell like life to those who are being saved, they're thankful. When we smell like death to those who are perishing, sometimes they turn and believe, and sometimes they simply are against us. And that's the group Peter's speaking of. And so you see, when you're being insulted really for the sake of Christ, it's because people are identifying you with Jesus. They're smelling Jesus in some sense in you. And that's offending them and they're coming against you. And so Peter says, rejoice. So he says, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says there's even greater joy, there's even greater rejoicing when the glory of Jesus is revealed, that is, when he comes back. Now the question is, why? Why will... Our rejoicing increase when Jesus returns if we've suffered for him. 
The answer is because then we'll see that our suffering was really worth it. We'll see that our suffering was really worth it. In fact, when we see how glorious Jesus is, I think, make the statement in our own hearts, which is, this was no sacrifice at all. And oh, that I only had more to suffer, because he is so great that there isn't anything I wouldn't have suffered for that. But we get glimpses of that in the context of life. Women who have had babies, and I've talked to a few. I always have to be careful when I use women who had babies examples because I myself have never had one and I'm, they're often ready to remind me of that. But I've been told by women who have had babies that though the pregnancy may be difficult and though the labor and delivery may be difficult, when the baby comes, you think, ah, it was worth it. Whatever I suffered, it was worth it. If you have a story contrary to that, I don't want to hear it. Um, but it was worth it. Students can even think in the context of, of their lives. Studying is hard. But yet when you get that wonderful grade or when you finally graduate, you look back and you say, it was worth it. At least that's what you should tell your parents. The uh, businessmen in, in, in various tasks that you undertake and various projects that you're involved in might be very difficult and, and cause you in some sense suffering and, and pain and sacrifice but if the project turns out well, you can turn back and look and you say, oh, that was good. And so, so we have glimpses of what this might be like. But Peter says, listen, when you see the glory of Christ, understand that at that moment in time, if you suffered for him, you'll be filled with great joy because you'll know every minute was worth it. Every bit of suffering was worth it. And then he goes on. He says, this isn't only a future blessing, but it's a present one too. For if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Isn't that amazing? He says, listen, in the midst of your suffering, the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. That is, the Holy Spirit visits you in those moments in a very special way. So don't worry. When it starts happening, don't worry. The Holy Spirit will come and the spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you during these times of suffering. You say, well, how will that look? How will that feel? And the answer, of course, is I don't know exactly. I suspect it's different in various occasions. Jesus told his disciples that when they're beaten and flogged and brought before the authorities and they have to speak, don't worry about what you'll say because the Holy Spirit will speak through you. The Spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you. Uh, Jesus in another situation said, if you love me, do you obey my commandments? And my Father loves you and I love you. I will disclose myself to you. Perhaps there's a special revelation of Jesus in the midst of this kind of suffering. He said, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done. There's a sense that Christ is so close to you in the midst of those times of living in him, abiding in him, suffering for him, sharing in his sufferings, that perhaps he's close to answer your prayers. Then, of course, in Romans in chapter 5 and verse 3, we read this. It says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Same word as Peter. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us 
The apostle says, listen, you can rejoice in your sufferings because you know that your character will change so that it's more like Jesus. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's the spirit of glory and of God resting upon you. That in the midst of this, he's growing you up. In the midst of this, he's purifying you. In the midst of this, he's causing you to be more conformed to the image of Jesus, to be like him. And then he says, this won't put us to shame. This won't make us ashamed. This won't disappoint us, essentially, because in this process, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That is, we will know the love of God more deeply in those moments than perhaps at any other time. That's why we can rejoice in sufferings. Because the love of God will be poured out in our hearts. The affirmation in the midst of that will be that God loves us. We won't be saying, oh, why has God abandoned me? But as we share in the sufferings of Christ, we'll see, ah, God loves me. So then Peter goes on. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let us continue to live like that. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Hold those verses for next Sunday. Verse 19. Therefore, his final admonition. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He says, listen, if you're suffering, not as a murderer, not as a thief, not as an evildoer, not as a meddler, but if you're suffering in a way that's pleasing to God because of what you've done, here's what to do. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator while you're continuing to do good. Now, you know who else did that? Jesus. Turn back a page. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He, that is Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He says, listen, during these times, when you're being maligned because you're a believer in Christ, Trust God. He's faithful. That is, he'll do everything that he's promised. This test that's come will be productive. He'll purify you. The spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you. And you'll know his love and his transforming power. A day will come when you'll rejoice beyond your greatest imagination when you see the glory of Christ and his value and the worth even of your suffering because he's one who is faithful and he's the creator. He knows you. He made you. He's remaking you. And he'll do it right. So Peter says, rejoice during these times of insult, these times of suffering, because it's purposeful, because God will be with you, because he will transform you and even prove his love to you. But you know, none of that's of any worth or value unless you love Christ. I mean, the only people to whom this can be soothing at all or comforting or cause to rejoice are people who really believe this, who really desire 
to be like Jesus, to be conformed to his image, to glorify him, to please him. If that's not the case for you, then none of this really makes any sense at all. None of this makes any difference at all. There's a little expression in Colossians, in chapter 3, verse 5, just the opening couple of words. And it simply refers to Jesus like this. It says, Christ, who is your life? You see, everything about this passage revolves around Jesus. Everything in this passage revolves around who he is, as the very one who reveals God to us, who shows God to us, who saves us, who transforms us. It's his glory. We're his glory. And so if Jesus isn't your treasure, then there'll be no rejoicing for being insulted for the name of Christ. And then this second. Are we living our lives in such a way that people smell Jesus? That people really see him? That people really understand that we're identified with him? Remember some years ago, I was in the midst of a church situation. I wasn't in ministry at the time, but I was in the midst of a church situation and there was a bit of a dispute. And so I went to the pastor of the church and I said, I'll be happy to talk to these people because both sides really like me. And he was a wise old bird and he said, then which side doesn't know you? <laughs> oh, yeah. The reason they both like me is no, neither side knows my view. And I wonder which side doesn't know us. Does the world? Does Christ? With whom are we openly, honestly, authentically identified with? My wife, who's the best evangelist in the house, uh, I didn't tell you I was going to say this, but I'm going to say this. Um, has a way of, of, of relating to people. And, and it was highlighted the other day when she came home after talking with someone who wasn't a believer. And she had a smile on her face. And she said, I, I just talked to her like I talked to everybody else. I, just, I don't hide anything about my faith. I just talked to her like I talk to everybody else. I, and, and since I'm a Christian, I talk about Jesus. And I don't do it offensively. I just talk about Jesus. And so everybody knows her. And that's the way it's to be with us. We're to be known. Not as obnoxious, not as combative, but just to be known as those who are followers of Christ, those who are united with Christ, those who are identified with Christ. That's all. And Peter says, if that's true for you, don't be surprised when there are people who take offense. Don't be surprised when people insult you. And that will cause suffering. That will... That will hurt. There's no denying that. But still rejoice. Why? Because God's here. Because God's testing. Because God's purifying. Because God's growing you up. Because his spirit will be upon you. And when it is, you'll mature. And you'll see a day will come when it will all have been worth it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us. 
that we would be people who are known as Christians. That folks will recognize that we've been with Jesus. Not because we're obnoxious about it or combative or argumentative or any of that. But simply because we live as followers of Christ. And we live boldly in his name and we speak respectfully and gently in his name. And people simply will know. And then I pray that you would work in us in such a way that we would experience all that we're to experience as followers of Christ, including the blessing of those who love us and even the sharing in Christ's sufferings because of those who don't. And so I pray, Father, that we would be a people that would glorify you, that we would entrust our souls to you, our faithful creator, while doing good. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please.